Well, friends, let's pray. Loving Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us and that he would quiet our souls and open up our hearts so that we can receive the good word which you've given to us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by asking you a question. If you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? Let me ask the question again. If you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? This is the question that a Jan Hersia Lee's therapist asked her just a little while ago. Hersia Lee is a writer, activist, and social commentator who recently stunned the world by converting to Christianity. She is Somalian-born, but she was raised in Kenya. She grew up in a Muslim family, but during her teenage years, she was radicalized by a teacher belonging to the Islamist group, the Muslim Brotherhood. She went right in for radical Islam. Eventually, whilst living in the world of radical Islam, Hersia Lee found herself being forced into a marriage which she didn't want to be a part of. And this forced marriage caused Hersia Lee to despair. So she fled to the Netherlands and there she found political asylum. Hersia Lee would go on to be a leading public intellectual and elected politician in the Netherlands and eventually she would turn totally against the Islam of her younger years and become the poster child for the new atheist movement, becoming good friends with leading atheists Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. In her best-selling book, Infidel, she wrote, the only position that leaves me with no cognitive dissonance is atheism. However, as the years went by, Hersia Lee found that atheism's assertion that the universe, and therefore human life, is fundamentally meaningless and purposeless was unbearable. It began to affect her mind, it began to affect her heart, it began to affect her soul, it began to affect her life. She read piles of books, she looked into psychiatry, she looked into alcohol, and eventually she went to therapy. And in the midst of therapy, Hersey Lee was asked this question by her therapist, if you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? Hersey Lee thought of the God that she used to believe in, the God of her younger years, and she said, well, that God was a horror show a God who created you to frighten you and to punish you. So naturally, Hersia Lee did not say that she wanted that sort of God to exist. But as she did describe the God of her hopes and dreams, as she described this God to her therapist, what she realized was that she was actually describing the Lord Jesus. To quote Hersia Lee, yeah, right, that's actually a description of Jesus Christ. And so to put all of this succinctly, Hersia Lee realized that the God she hoped and wanted to exist was the God who is revealed by the Lord Jesus. And so as we sit here together on this Christmas Eve, I want to ask you that same question, that same question that Hersia Lee's therapist asked her. If you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? I ask you this question not because we actually do get to create our own God, 
but because asking such a question helps us to get in touch with the deep hopes and desires that hide away within the recesses of our hearts. It's a powerful question to ask yourself. Perhaps you hope for a God who is all love. Perhaps you want the consolation of a God who specifically loves you. Perhaps you want a God who is beautiful. Perhaps you want a God who is merciful and gracious. Perhaps you want a God who will conquer the evil of the world, establish a kingdom of peace, and put an end to all oppression and injustice. Perhaps you want a God who can give reasons for the specific injustices and evils that you yourself have suffered. Perhaps you want a God who will give you answers and explain himself. Perhaps you don't want there to be a God. Perhaps you reject the idea of the transcendent altogether. Perhaps this question about God makes you uncomfortable or confused or angry. Or perhaps it makes you happy as you call to mind the God you've known and loved for years and years. I don't know how you might answer the question that I've asked you. I don't know what kind of thoughts are swirling around in your hearts and minds when you think of God, but I do want to suggest to you that the way you answer this question is deeply revealing. It reveals the deep hopes, desires, fears, and loves that bump around inside of you. It reveals something profound about who you are. So I encourage you to keep this question in mind as we now turn to the Christmas story. If you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? Keep this question in mind as we now think about the God who introduces himself to us in the Christmas story. And so we might start by saying that the most striking thing about the Christmas story is that God introduces himself to us as a baby. And so it's very good that all the babies are here this evening and their crying reminds us of this remarkable fact that God introduced himself to the world as a baby. God did not come onto the scene as some orb of inapproachable light. God did not come as some Zeus-like old man with a lightning bolt in his hand. God introduced himself to the world as a baby. God doesn't smite anything in this story. God doesn't move mountains. God doesn't split the Red Sea. He is simply born as a baby, and then he's laid in a manger where he sleeps and presumably cries. We peek into the manger, and we see that crying baby and say, Behold, my Lord and my God. The Christmas story requires that we bring together two ideas that seem overwhelmingly different, almost contradictory, almost contradictory, almost the opposite of one another. The Christmas story requires that we bring together the idea of Almighty God and the idea of a little baby. And this is the great revolution of Christmas. That which is largest is married to that which is smallest. That which is strongest is married to that which is weakest. That which is eternal enters into the temporal. The creator enters the world of the creature, and heaven comes to earth. This incredible coming together, this incredible union between God and man, is something that the great fathers of the church spent a good long time thinking about. Not only because it was thrilling and satisfying, because but because they wanted to accurately describe what had happened on that first Christmas evening in the manger of Bethlehem. What we call the incarnation, the taking on of human flesh by God, is something that blew the minds of the world's greatest thinkers. Explaining the flood of Noah's day or the splitting of the Red Sea in Moses' day was child's play compared to wrapping one's mind around the significance and magnitude of the incarnation. Eventually, the great teachers of the church would come to this conclusion. 
we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. This is a part of what is called the Chalcedonian definition, which was written in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It describes in carefully crafted language the remarkable reality that was presented to the world on that first Christmas, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ, he who is truly God and truly man. And so we say at the outset that the God who introduces himself to us in the Christmas story is this remarkable, this fascinating union between God and man in one person. What we might now ask, does God's coming to us as a human baby tell us about him? Well, to begin with, it shows us that he's generous. The Son of God was compelled to enter the world by nothing other than his own love and his own mercy, by nothing other than his own desire to generously bless humanity. Jesus gladly gave up the riches of heaven for the poverty of the stable so that he might lead humanity back into the blessings of heaven. As scripture says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. It is appropriate in one sense that we give each other gifts at Christmas time. The practice has perhaps become commercialized and secularized, but perhaps the practice will serve to remind you of the fact that Christmas is all about the riches of heaven being generously poured out upon an impoverished world. In the Christmas story, we meet a God who is giving himself to the world, offering himself to the world, so that the world might share and enjoy his riches. God's coming to us as a baby also shows us that he's humble, which is an interesting thing to say about a God who is altogether glorious and altogether radiant. The Christmas story reminds us of the humility of God. It reminds us that God is no capricious narcissist, that he is no attention-seeking, insecure tyrant, but rather the humble servant of humanity. The scriptures tell us that Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus comes to us not only as Lord and Savior, but also as our servant. As the Lord Jesus himself once said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, wrote this in his book on the Incarnation. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display the thing would have been to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. The Christmas story introduces us to a God who comes to us as a humble servant, a God who is willing to enter into the mud and blood of human life and offer the helping hand. This is to say that God comes to us in such a way that we are able to relate to him. God comes to us in such a way that we're able to trust that he understands the ups and downs, the trials and the joys of our lives. Jesus was born like us, he grew up like us, he suffered like us, he was tempted like us, he laughed like us, he cried like us, 
He was happy like us. He was sad like us. He's not distant and aloof, but close and relatable. One of the things that shines through in the Christmas story is that God is a great lover of common men and common women. When God chose a mother and a foster father for his son, he did not go to the elites of society, nor did he go to the centers of earthly power. Rather, he went to the backwater town of Nazareth and picked out a common sort of young lady with a common sort of fiance. They're famous now, but they weren't famous when they were chosen. Then when God sends his multitude of angels to announce the good news of his son's birth, he does not send them to the great metropolises of Jerusalem or the great city of Rome. Instead, he sends the multitudes of heaven, the great armies of heaven, to a little hillside in the small city of Bethlehem, where these angels sing to a bunch of dirty shepherds who are watching their flocks by night. The quietness, the obscurity, the out-of-the-way nature of the Christmas story teaches us something profound about God. It teaches us that the common shepherd and the average young lady are just as significant to God as the king or the queen, the prince or the princess. The spotlight of worldly fame may never fall on us, but the spotlight of God's care and attention falls on the lives of common people all the time. God does not communicate or interact with the world through a religious or a political elite, but rather he goes directly to the people and establishes his relationship with them personally. Recently, I was listening to a podcast, and in that podcast, a contrast was drawn between the Christmas story and the recent coronation of King Charles III. In the case of King Charles's coronation, to attend that event, you had to be amongst the elite of society. You had to be a head of state or another monarch or some great musician. And then contrast that now with the birth of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The angel choirs were sent to sing not amongst the stained glass and choirs of Westminster Abbey, but rather to a gaggle of poor common folk on a hillside. This is a God who has inexhaustible care and attention for common everyday people. And now I'd like to shift and look at the good news that the angel shares with the shepherds on the Bethlehem hillside. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As we've gone through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel together over the past four weeks, we've seen that angels keep popping up. And in each instance, the angels have something important to say. This pattern holds as we move into the story of Jesus' birth. At first, a single angel appears to the shepherds and says, Fear not, for behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy. And then, once this single angel had delivered the good news, a great multitude of angels appear and say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. The words of the angels teach us two things. One, that God is a savior and two, that God brings peace. Remember what Ayan Hirsi Ali said about the God of her past. She said that he was a horror show, a God who had created humanity simply to frighten and simply to punish. Well, in the Christmas story, we find a God who is not eager to punish or to frighten, but rather eager to save and eager to put at peace. A God who is eager to take us out of the darkness and the misery and remove us to rest and peace. 
In Charles Dickens' famous story, A Christmas Carol, the ghost of Christmas present is a spirit that embodies all the jollity and merriment and goodness of Christmas. Listen to how Dickens describes this spirit. He writes, Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. But now listen to this. Listen to this next description of the ghost of Christmas present. Girded around its middle was an ancient scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. The empty scabbard, the rusted sheath, the swordless scabbard, is a symbol of peace. Dickens recognized that with Christmas came peace. And as we think about the Christmas story, we would do well to ask ourselves why God showed up as a baby in the first place. What sort of business was he getting up to by taking human flesh upon himself? Well, in keeping with the message of the angels, we see as Jesus' ministry progressed that his chief goal was to establish peace amongst humanity, peace between God and humanity. His purpose was to reconcile to God a humanity that had been alienated from God. This truth becomes all the more wonderful when we remember that the war that is raged between God and man for age upon age was started by us, not by him. It was our rebellion which began this alienation between God and human beings. God did not reject us. God did not set an antagonism between us and him. We did it. Sometimes we're tempted to be afraid of God or terrified of God. But the Christmas story shows us that God comes to us eager to save and eager to establish peace. As such, a response can be one of welcome and rejoicing, not one of torment. Over the past week, uh, someone in the congregation reminded me that the language which is used to refer to the host of angels that arrive is military language. The host of angels who arrive are the armies of God. But instead of declaring war, they declare peace. Beautiful image, the great armies of God declaring peace. Finally, I want us to focus our attention on Mary and Joseph, the mother and foster father of Jesus. As we consider this young couple, we'll recognize that their lives were unalterably changed by their willingness to say yes to God. But for the intervention of God, Mary and Joseph would have lived and died as normal, poor peasants. But because of God's great intervention in their lives, they found themselves going and doing things which they previously would never have expected. God's coming into the world as a baby shows us that God is moving the story of the world in a new direction. And all who are devoted to the God at the center of this story will find that their lives are taken in a remarkably new direction. One thinks of all the great figures of the Bible. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Deborah, David, Esther, Ruth, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, Mary Magdalene, to name just a few. All of them were drawn out of their old lives and cast into new adventures that exposed them to the goodness and greatness of God. The God who introduces himself to you in the Christmas story is a God who rehauls, revamps, renews, reorders, reprioritizes, and revolutionizes your life. As one reads the Christmas story, there's almost a precariousness, a tenuousness to the whole thing. Mary and Joseph are a poor couple. They're not married yet. Those around them might have considered them immoral, and they have a baby to bring into the world. 
You can imagine the anxiety and the fear that might have been generated by such an experience. And yet, the angel had said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. And so this couple make it because God cares for them. And so we have a generous God, a humble God, a relatable God, a servant God, a God who loves the common man, a God who saves, a God who brings peace, and a God who calls us out into the adventure of life. More, of course, could be said about this story, and more, of course, could be said about the God at the center of this story. But I hope that you've all had a small and meaningful glimpse this Christmas Eve of the great and glorious God that rests at the center of this story. I asked you at the beginning of this message to hold a question in your mind. The question is this, if you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? And then going through the Christmas story, I've described to you a God who is infinitely lovable and eternally satisfying. The good news is that such a God does not, to be a, such a God does not need to be imagined or created because such a God exists. Such a God is the God. This God is the answer to all of our best hopes, desires, loves, and aspirations. The musician Johnny Cash once said about his friend Bob Dylan, I knew Bob Dylan was searching for the truth and had been for years, and anyone who really wants the truth ends up at Jesus. And so if you want the truth or love or life or peace or joy or adventure, the Christmas story is a good place to start. Peek into the manger of Bethlehem and find the answers to your life. Find the God who does exist, and it's good news that he does. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that when we pray, you hear us. You delight to hear us, and you delight to answer us. And so we ask now that you would draw us closer to yourself and help us to fall more deeply in love with you, and as we do, that we would find our lives filled with joy and peace, with hope, yeah, and with exceedingly great joy. I know I already said joy, but it's such a joyful message, such a joyful story at Christmas, and we're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.